0: We've entitled a message, maybe a little unusual to you here and looking at the passage that I just read. But today is the day of opportunity. Here as we have been in our study of the Word of God verse by verse and have come into chapter 7. Again, you've heard this from me over and over in various passages that we've been in. But it fi- I find it interesting that we come across chapters 7 and 8 in the middle of our thanksgiving season ourselves. And you might say, why, Uh, some of you that have not been with us? Because the Jews, in the context of what we are studying, you may recall those who have been here, are in the midst of a celebration time. And literally, they're celebrating their time of thanksgiving in Chapter 7 and chapter 8. It is known as the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Boots. if you look at verse 2, or really, just as we sang a few moments ago, the ingathering. And that's what it was. It was the celebration, a feast that was a week long. It wasn't just a day like we have today. It was a week-long celebration. But keep in mind that they were celebrating what God had done, how God had provided for them how God had delivered them, and a lot of other things that I've already rehearsed to you. So they are actually coming to Jerusalem to celebrate with thanksgiving at this time. And that is the season that we find ourselves in right now. But let me just, for a couple of moments, stimulate our thinking again, because I do think at times of celebration, first of all, it's good. It's good to be reminded. We have that in communion. Good to be reminded of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. We would forget. And the reason we have communion is God knew us so well that he gave us that so we could remind ourselves of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. And I am thankful that regardless of how it took place and so forth, and I've studied that history with you, but even at this time of year we have a day set aside for Thanksgiving or we have a day set aside for Christmas and so forth. And there's debate among Christians and non-Christians over the timing. You're losing the whole point, folks. It's good to have a time in which you're reminded of the Lord Jesus Christ coming. A good uh, thing to have a date in which you reflect on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead are a good thing to be reminded of the fact that there should be Thanksgiving going on. So I think It is wonderful to have times like that. And Israel needed it. They were warned over and over in the Old Testament, lest ye forget. Lest you forget your God. Lest you forget what God had done for you. That's why I'm putting certain things in your lives. And I think the time of Thanksgiving is a good thing for that to help us to reflect. But like anything else, isn't it true that times of celebration can become routine? They can become habits, dare I say. They can become commercialized. And I think that's a day and age in which we are living, in which be it Thanksgiving, be it Christmas, which we're coming upon shortly, be it resurrection time or what we know as Easter, that those things can be just routine. They can be a time of celebration, a time for us to gather together even with family and forget what it's all about. And get so caught up into commercialism, especially as we see that advertised, people just want business. They want income and so forth. And they keep publicizing things. And then we as Christians get caught up into the commercialism as well. And we forget, yeah, we find we had a turkey, we had this, we had that. What was this all about? Were there pilgrims? Was there a Mayflower? What in the world happened here? We forget. It can happen easy. We forget why we're doing what we do, what we're doing, and many of us do. And we have struggles that are going on in our lives, and we forget the provisions of God. And that's one of the reasons that some of the celebrations went on even in Israel. It's absolutely amazing, and I am going to deal with the text verse by verse, as uh, you know, the re- you that regularly attend. But it's absolutely mind-boggling because even as I studied in this passage again in chapter seven and eight, looking ahead, because both deal with the Feast of Boots or the Feast of Tabernacles, they are in the midst of celebration of thanksgiving for what God has done. And I believe as you look at the text, you find out that they were missing the greatest opportunity that was in front of them. They were. The Lord Jesus Christ was right there. And here they are celebrating what God has done They have been long awaiting for the Messiah to come. They're in the midst of giving thanks to God for how He's provided for them. And the biggest provision that God could present to them and what they've been anticipating all these years is right there in their midst, and they miss it. Why? They were gathering in Jerusalem, they were celebrating the occasion. There was a lot of activity going on, but they absolutely couldn't see the forest through the trees. They couldn't even see the Messiah in their midst. They should have been rejoicing and giving thanks, and that should have turned to, of all things, look, we're celebrating what God has done, and now he sent the Messiah. Now we can really rejoice. Now we can really praise God. Now we should really be giving thanks to him for what he's accomplished. But they could not even see it. And so I've entitled it, Today is the Day of Opportunity. And let me stimulate your thinking again right at the beginning. It is very possible, I believe, for us as Christians, or even people who have not come to Christ yet, to miss opportunities. For what? Salvation, when God presents clearly through the Word of God what salvation is and how we can have a right relationship to God, it is very possible right in the midst of that to be going to church, to be having a time of thanksgiving, to be involved in family activities, be thanking God we got a free nation, and never come to know the God who has given us salvation. It's very possible for Christians to gather together and be involved in all of those things and be missing opportunities to witness day in and day out, to be missing opportunities to learn, to grow, to serve, opportunities when God brings conviction to repent, opportunities as God is leading in a life to be so caught up in all the things that we're doing to never move to the next step that he wants to bring you to because you're so caught up in the activities of what's going on in your own personal life, and you don't see what God is trying to do. Every one of us face that, and there's opportunities. And I want to challenge us not to miss the opportunities that God gives us and to take advantage of those things and seize the day, so to speak, that expression that's used, while you can and while I can. As we come back to this text now in John chapter 7, with that kind of in our mind and so forth. In our context, they are right in the middle of the feast, you'll recall. The Lord Jesus Christ went up right in the middle of the feast. And he, it has now progressed. And since it's seven days, somewhere in the third, fourth day. And in that time, Jesus has told them who he is. He's told them he's the Messiah. He's told them where he came from. He told them that he came from the Father. He came from heaven. And he came to them. He has also exposed them. He's exposed specifically the Jewish leaders. Why? Because he has exposed their plot to kill him. And he's exposed that publicly. The multitude have come. Now, they came again, like we do for celebrations. They had come from all different parts of the Middle East, and they had come into the Jerusalem area to the town of Jerusalem for celebration. And they have accused him, verse 20 recently, the multitude, of being demon-possessed. Here he is, the Messiah, in their midst. They have come from a time of gathering, and things don't fit their particular program, and they turn around the things of God so that they have the gall, if you will, and the boldness to say that he's demon-possessed as opposed to being the Messiah. How's that a twist on things? And Jesus has charged them Where we left off last week, when you come to verse 24, which you know what? You better start judging righteously. We make judgments all the time, often wrongly. Every one of us, every one of us. And he's charged them that they need to judge things according to righteous judgment, as they really are. And we see that as he does this and presents it to them, even though they are charging him with having a demon, even though they are killing him, The first point in my outline to you is when the opportunities arise, we need to speak with boldness because that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ does. He is giving them an opportunity and he speaks with boldness in verses 25 through 27. And it may be, let me just give you this right now, since we're gathering for things like Thanksgiving, you will be gathering for things like Christmas, you will be gathering for New Year's celebrations and so forth. Let me prompt into your thinking fellow Christians, or those who may not know Christ to take advantage of the opportunities that God's given you to be bold. So often we get so caught up in the celebrations, and we're having a wonderful time, so are they, that we miss really what God's giving us as opportunities. We miss the opportunities to really bring praise to him or to present the gospel to somebody else and to give thanks. As we come now to verse 25, we come to a fourth group in our text. Now that's important to us. And by the way, if you're not careful with this, I really don't think you'll fully understand chapter 7 unless you're careful to know who's speaking and what is going on. Sometimes we take it loosely. But we're coming to a fourth group called some of the people. And you'll notice when I say fourth group, what do you mean? Who are the groups that we've seen already? Well, there are the Jewish leaders, and I won't read it, but that was verse 1. And we, we explained that to you. The Jewish leaders were there in Jerusalem. Then you recall that Jesus' own family, that was the second group, verse 3. His brothers had gone up, and they were there in the celebration, so we need to know when they're talking and what's going on. And then as we left off last week, there was the third group, that is the multitude, verse 20. And those were people that had traveled back to Jerusalem. They came maybe from Galilee, maybe from Judea, You know, different parts of Judea and Samaria and so forth. And they came down to Jerusalem. That was a multitude of people. They had traveled. If you think of Christmas time where the Lord Jesus Christ had to go back to register, people had come to that area. And it's similar to what we have. If there was a big event, you'd have the people that, if it was in Boston, for example, you'd have those that organized the event. You'd have people come all the way from, and the relatives of theirs, but then people who came from out of town to go there. And then you'd have this fourth group. What is the fourth group? The fourth group is this one here called in verse 25, therefore some of, watch this, of the people of Jerusalem. These were the people who were residents of the town. They didn't travel there. The multitude had done that. They weren't the brothers that had come up. They weren't just the Jewish leaders. These were the people who were the residents of the area. They were living there. And they're the ones now that are going to get caught up in the conversation. And they're the ones that are going to be talking. So the people of the town who knew what? Listen, they knew what was going on. They knew, and that's important because you won't understand verses 20 and 25, the distinction between them, if you don't understand which group's talking. They knew what the rulers were trying to do. They knew what people had thought about this person called Jesus Christ. And we see their discernment. They are not like, verse 20. Verse 20, the multitude that came said, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. These people had traveled from different towns and so on, and they come in, and in their mind they were coming, and they did maybe not know what the plots were of the leadership to kill him. But the people of the town did. We see that because in verse 25 it says, is not the man whom they are seeking to, is this not, excuse me, the man they are seeking to kill. They were the residents of the town. They're looking to Jesus Christ, and they, unlike the multitudes who came from different areas, the people that are living there say, isn't this the guy they've been trying to get to kill? The guy that they're trying to, uh, and expects a yes answer, by the way. In the Greek, there's a a number of different ways of presenting a question and so forth. This particular one expects a yes answer. Yeah, this is the guy. This is the one that they are trying to kill. And then what happens is they are surprised in verse 26 with the way the people are reacting to what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing. Look at verse 26. And this is where we see him speaking boldly. And look, he speaks, or he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. First of all, let's deal with the word speaking publicly. That's a good translation. It could be translated, that word could be translated and is translated, even in English, a number of different ways. It can mean publicly, that he's speaking openly. It could mean that he's speaking confidently. The scriptures use it that way. You'll see it in a moment. Or it could be that he's just speaking with boldness. And that's a common way in which it's understood. In fact, the King James, that's the way they translate it, that he spoke with boldness in their midst. New American Standard has chosen to use the word publicly. Any one of the three, listen, is not only a proper translation, but I believe any one of the three would fit the context. They really would. And so any one of them could. He was speaking publicly. He was speaking with confidence. He was speaking boldly. Turn with me to just a couple of references on this. I'll only go to two, two different areas. Go to Acts chapter 4. Turn with me in your Bibles, Acts chapter 4, just to see the uses. And you say, why? I'm going to come back to application to you and I. Acts chapter 4. Here they're trying to kill him. What does he do? Shy away? No. He speaks right out. In Acts chapter 4, I'll give you four references right in this chapter alone, which is one of the reasons for selecting this chapter. In chapter 4, verse 13, the word is used. It says, now as they observe the confidence of Peter and John. See that? The confidence, that's the way it's translated. confidence of Peter and John, they understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. What a way to be recognized, by the way. They had boldness or they had confidence. Peter and John were not concerned about the people around them. They had confidence to speak out, and even though they were apparently untrained in their eyes. Go to verse 29. Verse 29, in the same passage. And now, Lord, take note of their... Threats, they weren't worried about it. And grant that thy bondservants may speak thy word, how? With all confidence, or boldness, or publicly, that they would be able to continue to do that. And it's the same word. That they would be able to speak confidently. And now you'll see it translated a different way in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Spirit, and began to speak the word of God, it's the same word, with what? Boldness. With boldness. I want you to go to one other passage, and I'll show you why. Go to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Say, what's it got to do with us? The Lord Jesus Christ has his life threatened, and yet he's given an opportunity. He still can speak, and he does it confidently. He does it with boldness, and he does it publicly. He does every, every part of the word that we could use. And I want you to notice something else. Paul, in chapter 6 of Ephesians, prayed and asked for prayer th- in this way. Look at verse 19. He said, and pray, and this is right after he deals or is dealing with the armor of God that we ought to use as Christians. He says, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in opening of my mouth to make known, now watch how, with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Why did he ask for that prayer? Because like you and me, we fail to have boldness. We do. Opportunities come, but we shy away. Sometimes it's pressure from the outside like the Lord Jesus Christ was facing. And what I'm presenting to you, even in this text, Jesus Christ was presented with an opportunity here in Jerusalem. And he went up. And just because they were threatening his life, he didn't back off. All the more he spoke boldly or confidently. And he spoke publicly. He didn't wait and go in a private corner by himself. Not at all. And you and I need to take those opportunities that God gives us and not worry about what your boss looks like. Not worry about what your neighbor looks like. Not worry about what your relatives are thinking. Not worry about your own personality and and getting that in the way. Too often, Christians miss opportunities. Too often, those who don't know Christ, when they hear the message of salvation, because they're concerned about what their brothers and sisters are going to think. They're concerned about their mother or grandmother or aunt or uncle. Or they're concerned about their spouse, won't come and take advantage of the opportunity with boldness to trust in Christ. We need to have boldness. We need to not shy away regardless of the uh, situation. Even when there's oppression, even when opposition comes, when the opportunity presents itself, we need to be like Daniel of old. Daniel had courage. Listen to me here for a second. Many of you know the life of Daniel, and we know about Daniel in the lion's den and so forth, but I want you to know something else. Daniel, when an opportunity presented himself, took advantage even when the consequences were not going to be good. When he heard that if you pray and you're seen, you're going to get arrested, what did he do? He still opened his windows, faced the way he did, and he prayed. When the book came to him and he had the opportunity to interpret dreams, Even though one of those dreams was going to mean to the person, you are going to die. He told the truth. He with boldness presented what God wanted. He didn't let the circumstances affect him. You and I sometimes shy away when we have the message of eternal life because we're afraid that we've got to tell a person that they're going to go to hell if they don't trust in Christ. And we're afraid of that. Why? Why? The news is good news. We're afraid. We shouldn't be. The Lord Jesus Christ wasn't, though his life was threatened. Paul was the same way. Do not shy away from the opportunities that God may give you as the opportunities arise day in and day out. Go back to John chapter 7. So in verse 26, he was speaking boldly. They saw it, and the leaders, uh, and there's a reaction there. He says in there, the rulers, in verse 26, do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? Why? Because they didn't say anything. The end of verse 26. They said nothing to him. Jesus Christ spoke boldly and they wouldn't speak out, and so they now raise this question, and by the way, now they expect a no answer. The first time they expected a yes, the structure of this one is such that they expect no. They don't believe that at all. What could be said? The Lord Jesus Christ said. And you and I ought not to be afraid of the way people are going to react. I won't turn you there, but in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, it tells us that nothing will separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 13, in verses 5 and 6, we ought not to be afraid what man can do unto us. That's in this context, by the way, of even being satisfied with that which God's provided because he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Psalm 118, verse 6, same thing. Psalm 56, verses 4 and 11. We ought not to be afraid of man because God is the one on our side. And we, needed to, we need to have the boldness that Christ had. In verse 27, we go on. And while they are amazed that the rulers aren't doing anything, I want you to see the impact. You maybe don't see it at first, but verse 27, the impact that false teaching or tradition can have on people. False teaching or tradition. Why? Look at verse 27. However, we know where this man is from, and then they say this, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows. No one where he is from. That was common thinking. What was the common thinking of the day? It was that when the Messiah comes, no one's going to really know where he is from. Where did that filter down? Through tradition. Where did that filter down? Through some sabbatical teachings that Messiah is just going to appear. And possibly, at least from my perspective, would you turn with me to Malachi chapter 3? You know this passage, by the way. Malachi chapter 3. Last book of the Old Testament, by the way. I want to give them a little benefit of the doubt as far as the fact they might have even gone to Scripture. But even if they did, they misinterpreted it. In Malachi chapter 3, look at verse 1. Giving them the benefit of the doubt, you'll recognize the passage. Behold, I am going to send my messenger. That's John the Baptist. And he will clear the way before me. Now watch. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. I'll just stop right there. You can read the rest of it. What is he saying? He said the Lord will suddenly appear into his temple, which he did, by the way. And some interpretations were given that to say that he's just going to appear out of nowhere. We're not going to know where he came from. And that had carried on so that even the people of the town in verse 27 are saying, Whenever Christ comes, we're not going to know where he came from. He's just going to appear out of nowhere. Did they use that passage in Malachi? I'm not saying they did. I would give them the benefit that possibly they might have gone to a passage like that. But it was false thinking. It was misinterpretation. How do we know that, Pastor Dan? Did they know where the Messiah should come from? Yes. You say, well, how do you know that? Micah, don't turn there. Chapter 5, verse 2, you know it. O Bethlehem, though thou be smallest among the nations, yet from you shall come forth what? The Messiah, who's been from everlasting to everlasting. You say, well, maybe they didn't know that. Really? How about Matthew chapter 2? What happened in Matthew chapter 2? When the Roman authorities didn't know where the Christ would be born, where did they go? To the scriptures. Where in the scriptures? Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and they came back and said, guess what, he's going to be born here in Bethlehem. See, they knew where he was coming from, but they had let the influence. Now, why am I saying that to you? Be careful. Sometimes we let tradition and we let false teaching influence our theology, and we don't even know it. And that's what had happened to them. So that when the Messiah truly came on the scene, they were saying, well, we won't know. We know where this guy was from, but when the Messiah, so he can't be the Messiah, right? Because we're not going to know where he's going to appear on the scene. And they had absolutely mixed up the scripture. So number one, have boldness and don't be afraid of that. So that's what happened in verse 27. Number two in your outline there is don't change the message. Christ didn't. Look at verses 28 and 29. So after they raised that question, which was not true, and because they should have known where he comes from, it says in verse 28, Jesus therefore cried out in the temple, teaching and saying. Now, he's still in the temple. Now, he could have supernaturally read their mind. That's possible for Christ. I don't really think that that's the case, though, when you look at the context. I think he just overheard them. They were having this conversation openly in verse 27. He's in the middle of the temple. He's just been teaching them, right, verses 14 through 17. The people are standing right there. And what you have is he's not tears coming down from his eyes. This is kind of an announcement. If you go to verse 37, you see it again. It says, Now in the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out loud, saying, he's making an announcement, He did that in chapter 1. He's going to do it again in chapter 12. And so he's just, in a sense, frustrated with what he's hearing, and he cries out because he wants them to hear what he has to say. And the first thing he says to them is, you both know me and know where I am from? Now that can be taken one of two ways. And I know you're looking at an English Bible. That could be taken as a question. That could be presented as a question. You you think you know me, and you think you know where I am from, and why would I say that? Look at the context. And the rest of the verse. I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. They didn't know him, and they didn't know the Father. So he's either doing it by way of a question, or which most believe, It's irony. He's saying, you're making a profession of faith. You know where I am from, verse 27. Not a profession of faith, but a profession of knowing me. And where I'm from, verse uh, 27. You know, we know where this man is from. You really don't. Even though they had heard where he was from. And so Jesus repeats the same message. He says, I know the Father because I am from him. And he sent me. That's what he's been teaching in chapter 7 all along. What is it? That he's the Messiah. That I was with the Father from the beginning. That I've come down from the Father to be in your midst. That's where I came from. Not just the town that I was born in. I really came from the Father. I am the Messiah. But they wouldn't accept that. They were trying to kill him. They had false doctrine. And so what did he do? Adapt his message to appease the crowd. Not at all. He gave them the same message over and over. And what he had been saying to them before, look at verse 16. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. He told them that he had come from him. Verse 18 and so forth. He's been repeating it over and over. And he gave them the same message. He was sent from the Father. And when he says he knows the Father, that word know, there's a couple of different words that could be used. He knows him because his essence is the same as the Father. That's what he's dealing with. He didn't change the message. When you and I get opposition, when you and I have the opportunity to present the message, don't change the message. Too often, churches are being built on that today. Let's just get everybody in and change the way we do things. Why? Christ wasn't affected by the crowds. Christ wasn't affected by the fact that they were going to kill him. He kept the same message. He didn't keep it in reserve for later. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1 for a second. You know this passage. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it, that is the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why is that? For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith it is written, but the righteous... man shall live by faith. What is that saying? The power is found in the gospel. When you're talking to the unsaved, if the world around you says, look, you can't talk about sin, you talk about sin anyway. Why? Because they need to hear it. When the world around you says, there's many ways to get to heaven, what do you do? Change the message? I hope not. You need to turn around and say, there is only one way. Oh, really? That's your opinion. No, it isn't. The Lord Jesus Christ said there's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. The Lord Jesus Christ said he is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way. You don't change the message. And even though they resisted Christ, even though their traditions were wrong, Christ came right back to the same message. I came from him. I've come to you. You don't know him, and you don't know me, and you need to know me. That's what he said. And the world needs to hear that if you don't trust in Christ, you will spend eternity in hell. Why? Because all men have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If you're here today without Christ, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, maybe you're trusting in your good works. Maybe you're trusting in religion. Maybe you're trusting in going to church or that you read your Bible or that you pray. None of those things will bring you to God none of those things will provide salvation. Why? Because you're still a sinner. And it has to be paid for. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. How? Through Jesus Christ. God the Father sent his Son. That's what he's presenting to them in this feast. That I came from the Father, and I have come down. And they were confused. And he says, you don't know him. And when you preach the message of God, listen, You leave the results with God. And that's verses 30. Go back there in 31. In verse 30, they were seeking therefore to seize him. And no man laid hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the multitude believed in him. Let me stop right there. What happened? A mixed reaction. There were divisions. When the word of God is preached, when you truly give a message even in your family, that is right, you're going to get division. Remember what I said last week? We always want peace. We want everything in harmony. We want to satisfy everybody. Listen, if you're looking to do that in your heart, you're in trouble. Because even God says when everybody likes you, something's wrong. Something's wrong. You're not making the stand that you should be taking. Not at all. When you preach just the way it's supposed to be, Divisions will be caused. Some wanted to seize him, but you notice what happened with them, they couldn't do it. This was now the people. This was now the multitudes maybe. And what happened, they wanted to seize him. It was a spontaneous reaction. It was not like the leaders who had planned it out. They just heard him speaking, and some of them just wanted to get him, to seize him. They were unsuccessful. Why? It tells you why. His hour had not yet come. The hour in the word of God refers to the cross of Calvary over and over again. And the Lord Jesus Christ, this was not his time to die. And God the Father would protect him. And so the first reason they were unsuccessful is because the hour of the Lord Jesus Christ and his crucifixion had not yet come. By the way, it's only about six months away from this scene. But also God used another thing. That was God's perspective, his hour had not yet come. But he also used verse 31. What is that? From man's perspective, many of the multitude, those who had traveled, what happened? Believed in him. How do we know that it was genuine belief? We've already seen some issues in that. The rest of verse 31. They were saying, when the Christ shall come, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has done, will he? And again, they expect a no answer. What are they saying? They're looking at it. They looked at the miracles that Jesus had done. That's the signs. What had gone on? Well, if you remember our context, the healing of the impotent man, possibly the wedding feast at Cana that we studied in Chapter 2. They had witnessed a number of events where Christ had shown the signs of the Messiah. And if they knew their Bible, they saw the signs. They also heard his teaching. And their conclusion is when the Messiah comes, he's not going to do more than this, is he? No, this man's got to be the Christ. And so what you had was a group that believed on him and a group that wanted him killed. That will be true with you and I. As we get opportunity to live for Christ, as we get opportunity to present the gospel, not everybody's going to believe, but leave the results with God. Our job is to preach the message. Listen carefully for a second here. In Ezekiel chapter 33, I'm not going to turn there. In Ezekiel chapter 33, God is speaking to Ezekiel, and he says, I've made you a watchman over Israel. And that is application directly to him and over the nation of Israel. But he said this in the first 11 verses. He said, Ezekiel, he said, if you go and warn the people and you give them the message that I have given and they don't repent, it's going to be held at their blood on their hand. But if you go and don't preach the message and they go to hell, basically, what will happen is I'll keep their blood at your hands because you didn't do what I told you to do. Now we can look at that. We can focus in on Israel. I understand that. But you know, that's what Christians are doing today. They have the message, and we're watchmen over the Word of God, we have the good news of salvation. We have the opportunity to bring it to the unsaved. And sometimes we hold on to it. And you know what? The unsaved, if they continue to die in that state, they'll go to hell. But the Lord will remind us. You didn't give forth the message. And you say, well, I'm not instructed to do so. Have you looked at Acts chapter 1, verse 8 recently? Have you looked at Matthew chapter 28 recently? Have you looked at the example that the you find in the book of Acts? We have a message to give, and we're not to change the message. Jesus Christ did his job. He not only went to the cross of Calvary, but he brought the message, and he kept it the way it should be kept. And what happened was some believed, and some did not believe. There's a warning, verses 33 to 36. Let's wrap it up. Jesus therefore said, for a little while, and what? No longer I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. He's talking about his return to the Father. He's talking about his ascension, verse 33. But notice verse 34. You shall seek me, he's talking to those who wouldn't believe, and shall not find me. And where I am, you cannot go. I find it interesting that in verses 35, the Jewish leaders don't even go themselves. They send others to seize him. They won't do it. And also we find out that they didn't understand this statement that he says, according to verse 36. But Jesus had warned them. The message had come forth, and the day is going to come in which it was too late for them. Let me bring it home. If you're here today without Christ, and you've heard the gospel preached by your spouse, by your children who have come home with the message, by a pastor from a pulpit, a Sunday school teacher, a Bible study, and you're saying, well, then someday maybe I'll believe, but right now I'm not going to believe. Today is the day of opportunity. There comes a point in time in when God's long-suffering runs out, and your opportunity for salvation will go. That's what Israel is being confronted with. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, you can mark it down. In that passage, we find the Lord Jesus Christ weeping over the nation of Israel. And he cries out, and he says, Oh, how long I have reached out to you, and you were not willing. And it was too late. It was too late for them. In this particular passage, the leadership is being presented with, It is going to be a point in time in which you're still going to seek after me. And by the way, the Jews are still doing that today. For these leaders, we know as we look at Matthew chapter 23, it was too late. There was a point in time in which they crossed the line and they would not find him. Let me remind you of Proverbs chapter 1. That's very practical even for children and for us. God points out that in that proverb, he says, I've been reaching out to you, reaching out to you. You would not, you would not, you would not. Now you're in the midst of a problem and you're crying out to me and I won't listen. In fact, I'm going to laugh at your calamity because all the times I reached out to you, you would not listen. Now we can very easily put that to the unsaved. In Isaiah chapter 55, You had that responsive reading. There was a reason. In verses 3 and verses 6 and verses 7, it dealt with the same type of thing. God's desire is for the unsaved to repent, to turn from their wicked ways. I refer to Ezekiel 33. That's what God says. I have no delight in sending people to hell, no delight in punishing the wicked, but he has to because of his justice. His delight would be to see you turn and repent. Today is the day of salvation and I don't mean to take Hebrews chapter 3 out of context or chapter 4 but today is the day of salvation. You have no guarantee of tomorrow. If you are sitting in this auditorium and have heard the message of salvation and have yet to trust in Christ this is your opportunity. Seize the opportunity. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But fellow Christian let me close with this. While in the context that's what Jesus was saying here and in the feast we're still in the middle of the feast. He's crying out to them and say, telling them, you know me. They're still thinking earthly. Where's he going to go and hide, verse 35, that we can't find him? They missed the whole point. And that was the point that he was bringing out to them, that they knew him and he was given the right message. But fellow believer, how many times are you given the opportunity to speak for Christ? How many times have you sat under a message, maybe at a home Bible study, Maybe your own devotions. And God was using the word of God to bring conviction, either about your witnessing or something he wanted you to do, and you're pushing it off. You're pushing it off. You're pushing it off. This is the time of opportunity. You say, someday I'll serve Christ. Someday I'll have the boldness to witness for Christ. Someday I'll get around to this. And the day never arrives. Why? You get wrapped up in celebration. You get wrapped up in the things that you're doing, and it never comes along. And then comes the judgment seat of Christ for believers. The judgment seat of Christ in which you have to give an account. Then what excuse are you going to give to the Lord? Well, I was too busy. Well, you know what happened in my family, how I needed to attend to this. Well, you know, I knew you were tugging at my heart to go, but I, you know, I just had to do this, Lord. Really? You won't be able to say any of that. The opportunities are seizing, being, should be seized every day. This is now Sunday. Do you know that whatever opportunities God gave you yesterday are now gone? You'll never get them again. They're gone. You can't live in the past. You and I, even as believers, need to live for Christ. And we're living in a day and age in which Christianity is going about, looking like the world, and people are just caught up in their own lives and are pushing Christ out the door of opportunity in their life. The message doesn't change. When it comes to personal witnessing, give the same message Christ did. When it comes to serving Christ, seize the opportunity now. We are to walk about circumspectly. We are to seize or redeem the time. We're to take advantage of it now. And I challenge you even with that for one small application. Here we are in the time of thanksgiving. Are you going to tell me, fellow believer, that you can't publicly give thanks to God because you're too nervous? You publicly can't tell others about what God has been doing because you're afraid? Really? Don't you think the same God that saved you can give you the strength? We let opportunities like Thanksgiving go by, and we'll do it maybe one-on-one with somebody. But we can't go any further. Why? Because of fear, and you miss the opportunity. We ought to, as Pastor Chris was talking about today, walk out of here as Christians and be praising God for salvation. Witnessing ought to come very easy, no matter who it is, no matter what the circumstance, because of what our God has done for us. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in God, I thank you and praise you for giving us this view of what went on in the temple. Here it was, even the crowds and the multitudes and the leaders came in and as the Lord Jesus Christ was in their midst and they had the opportunity to trust in him, praise God that some believed. Many in the multitude were trusting because they looked at the evidence. They looked at the miracles. They looked at his teaching. But Father, still there were those that were hard-hearted, looked at their own traditions, their own confusion of doctrine. They looked at the pressures that were around them and they didn't like the same message that Jesus Christ was giving Father, let that be a reminder to us that we need to seize the opportunities. And even like the Lord Jesus Christ, who had boldness and had clarity of thought and spoke publicly and openly with confidence, help us to give the same message over and over regarding salvation. Help us not to be afraid to witness. Help us to seize the opportunities that you give us. But even more than that, as Christians, help us to seize the opportunities in every way for the way you want to lead in our life. Maybe it's a direction you're leading of service. Maybe it's calling to a mission field. Maybe it's being called into full-time ministry in some capacity. God, help us not to resist. Help us to seize the opportunities. And I pray, Father, and ask that if there be in our presence just one person who does not know Christ, oh, Father, help them to see that today is the day of salvation. Help them not to push it off. Help them not to close their ears or their eyes what you're doing but help them father to come to repent to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ might you do a work in their heart so as they come to the Lord Jesus Christ they will see that he in no wise will cast them out and that father they can have forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life thank you for the opportunity to be here today and we pray that this Thanksgiving this week we would have be having a week of praise that is obvious to all around us as we give praise to your name.